Good afternoon, and welcome to the Live Poet Society, where we read aloud literature in real time and chat about it. I'm your unqualified host, Hattie Rensbury. For today's episode, I've decided to take you on a trip for a summer by the sea. But first, let's check out some of the releases on the New York Times August book release list that I think sound interesting. Let's start first with The Bee Sting by Paul Murray, which was released today, August 15th. Um, it's billed as sort of a comedy of errors novel, and it, the seller's byline goes something like this. The Barnes family is in trouble. Dickie's once lucrative car business is going under, but rather than face the music, he's spending his days in the woods, building an apocalypse-proof bump- bunker with a renegade handyman. His wife, Imelda, is selling off her jewelry on eBay while their teenage daughter, Cass, formerly top of her class, seems determined to binge drink her way through her final exams. And 12-year-old PJ is putting the final touches to his grand plan to run away from home. This book, at least in description, gives me some reminder of the infamous Rose family from Schitt's Creek. Their lives are crashing down around them, and like we all do when faced with a crisis, they're dealing with it all in their own way. The difference between reality and narratives that deal with the issue of financial or social collapse is that unlike real life, where we more often have to deal with the issue by problem solving with some amount of calmness and sobriety to fix it, in these sorts of stories, there seems to be more extreme elements of futility, absurdity, panic, and stark clear-headedness. This book is billed as being a comedy in a lot of different ways, so if that's what you're looking for, this might be the one. Another book that's releasing on August 22nd is Daughter of the Dragon, Anime Wong's Rendezvous with American History by Yunta Huang. This is a biography, and I'll read you the quick blurb. Born into the steam and starch of a Chinese laundry, Anime Wong emerged from turn-of-the-century Los Angeles to become old Hollywood's most famous Chinese-American actress, a screen siren who captivated global audiences and signed her publicity photos with a touch of defiance, orientally yours. Now, more than a century after her birth, Yunta Huang narrates Wong's tragic life story, retracing her journey from Chinatown to silent-era Hollywood and from Weimar Berlin to decadent pre-war Shanghai and capturing American television in its infancy. If you're like me and have heard the name Anime Wong much more often in recent years, especially with the success of other industry powerhouse actresses such as Michelle Yeoh, this book may be rather enticing. Although there aren't any customer reviews out yet as the book is still in pre-order phases, this is not um, Yunta Huang's first foray into the analysis of the lives of historical figures, specifically those who are immigrants and of various agent heritage, heritages. He's also a professor of English, and uh, it just seems like this might be a really nice tribute to her legacy, but only time will tell once the book comes out. And now, let's get into our poetry for the month. Some of you may have noticed last month that there wasn't an episode. That's because I was off gallivanting among the salt and fog in Maine. The experience was delightful, and I thought with today's episode, I could bring you, the listeners, some of that. Let's paint a sensory picture first, so you can get the full effect. You're standing on a lawn. Not the kind of grass that's hanging on by a thread in a climate that it wasn't designed for. Oh no, this grass is almost too green. Saturated with the constant damp that permeates the soil and air along the seaside. You breathe in slowly, the scent of dark earth and the neighbor's flower garden wafting along on a soft breeze. The air isn't sticky, it's not too hot enough for that, but it does feel dense. 
A passing thought in your mind includes brief concern for ticks and mosquitoes, but soon you're distracted by watching the birds flit in and out of the fog as it steadily rolls towards you across the lawn. And it really does roll. Like a steamroller made of mist rather than a gathering storm, you step to a rocker situated on a whitewashed porch. The tightly woven wicker creaks as your body settles into it. As you begin to rock back and forth, you observe a small grass spider as it skitters to and fro down the porch towards the lawn and wall of mist. The first poem for today is by Stuart Kestenbaum. Kestenbaum was Maine's Poet Laureate from 2016 to 2021 and has been a host for several public radio shows as well as podcasts such as Make Time and Voices of the Future. His contemporaries describe his work as heartfelt responses to the privilege of having been given a life, no hidden agendas here, no theories to espouse, nothing but life, pure life, set down with craft and love. I think that fits very nicely within our theme for today, because some people take summer and the time off that they use within it to tick things off of their bucket list and try to experience life, whether it's through a full vacation, whatever that means to you a staycation, or just a weekend of joy, there is something that rings true about capturing that feeling of pure life that many people associate with summer. And now, let's listen to Joy by Stuart Kestenbaum. The asters shake from stem to flower, waiting for the monarchs to alight. Every butterfly knows that the end is different from the beginning, and that it is always a part of a longer story in which we are always transformed. When it's time to fly, you know how, just the way you knew how to breathe, just the way the air knew to find its way into your lungs, the way the geese know when to depart, the way their wings know how to speak to the wind, a partnership of feather and glide lifting into the blue dream. Summer is just so easily captured in this particular poem. It is so visceral in regards to colors and movement, and Kestenbaum speaks really plainly about the ways that we are, can see ourselves in those butterflies and in those geese that are departing and moving through this, this place that he's created in the same way that we move through our own lives. So we can move on from that. Summer is a time of self-discovery, of reinvention. You've heard of hot girl summer. You've heard of renaissance girl summer. There's a lot of different parts of our contemporary culture that are rooted in the rebirth that comes from summer in the same way that they're rooted in the rebirth that comes with the Western idea of the new year beginning in January. People seem to have some amount of renewed hope, even if the weather is crushingly hot or humid. And there's something really magical and special that comes with that. So, of growth, facilitated by warm weather and extra sunshine, as plants photosynthesize, it seems that we humans do as well. This next poem from Carrie Salerno's book, Tributary, embodies that experience of self-knowing in the way that a place can represent for us better than we can. This is Says the River to Her Patriarchy by Carrie Salerno. To explain how a tributary becomes a river, there isn't a way. But for the tributary to, to deny it, I deny the very river. I deny the paying of tribute. Grow up, say the men in my life, men who gave me life when I am already the river. 
I say, I am the river. I say, I am grown. I say, listen to my rushing. I say, you will stay until I have finished my rushing. I really enjoyed this piece because it so blatantly depicts the experience of reminding people that listening to others is so deeply important. And sometimes the best thing you can do to be listened to is also to speak up for yourself and to advocate for yourself. And sometimes that change and that self-reinvention is such a part of that self-advocacy. Not to mention, I did want to talk a little bit about how rivers in this part of the country, in the Northeast, are different than they are here in Colorado. In Colorado, they are big, rushing things, and they're dramatic, and they're color-changing, and they're um, very, very big, and also somewhat fewer fewer far between, in comparison to places like where I was last month, where it felt like every time we had to go somewhere, we had to cross a river on a very rickety old bridge, And they're much smaller, it seems, in some ways, and much calmer in other ways. Um, Although, similar to Colorado, there's no shortage of people boating down them. But they're not going for the rapids. They're going for the, the tours locally and for the experience of getting to be on a boat floating through the fog very leisurely and with the experience of more of a a soft experience rather than the adventure and the thrill that comes with some things like rafting or kayaking down things like the Colorado. If you couldn't already tell, Carrie Salerno does not shy away from difficult or complex topics, instead being quoted as saying that our habits and feelings about writing cannot help but be influenced by the history of literature, and it takes conscious effort to evolve the conversations we're having to change the language, our customs, to rise from our comfort zones. Salerno also has several other books besides Tributary, um, one of which is specifically called Shelters, and it's supposedly very, very difficult to read because it's about shelter pets and the way that we interact with them. Um, And it's been lauded very heavily because of how confrontational it is to issues that most people find in regards to that system and in regards to how we handle our own pets in that system. Uh, Carrie Salerno teaches at the University of Maine, Farmington, and often makes appearances at readings or talks pertaining to writing, publishing, and poetry. Like a lot of the poets that we feature on this podcast, um, it a lot of them that are currently living will do a lot of talks and offer workshops specifically catering to teaching people how to write or how to write poetry and how to do it um, either in their style or to teach them how to find their own style. So there's some things out there for everyone. If you have a poet that's contemporary that you love, maybe look into finding a way to interact with them, whether it's through online workshops or reading some of their non narrative papers or some of their um, articles that they've done. There's plenty of information out there about a lot of different poets that don't necessarily get all of the airtime. So that's pretty special in itself. Um, Salerno also is the editor and director of Alice James Books, a feminist publishing company partially founded by Betsy Scholl, who's another notable poet from Maine, and six of her contemporaries, I believe in the mid-1970s. Alex James Books has had a partnership with the University of Maine for nearly 30 years. You can tell now why I chose 
um, Carrie Salerno, partially because she's so confrontational and so clear um, for this episode, but also because she isn't necessarily someone who was born in Maine. And I felt like that was sort of a um, boxing myself in with that sort of part of the theme, but someone who's found a home there and found a way to interact deeply with the communities that live there um, and really appreciate the place that it is and how fascinating it can be in its own right. Um, Like I said before, Stuart Kestenbaum was Maine's poet laureate. So he really has such a pulse on understanding that area and getting to know it intimately, which I think is the beauty of getting to feature some poet laureates on this show is because they are chosen for a reason, whether it's because they truly embody the spirit of the place or because they embody the spirit that a place wishes to be. I think that's sometimes the case as well. Sometimes life imitates art and sometimes art imitates life. And either way, they inspire each other. So why why, why do we worry about it? We might as well just enjoy the fact that there's a different Poet Laureate for, for every need. We've featured quite a few on this show, and I can safely say that all of them are very worthy of their titles. Now, let's take a short break, watch the fog, listen to the waves lapping at the river shore, and revel in the sounds of a summer storm. Wasn't that nice? That was part of the experience of getting to enjoy a summer by the seashore. Let's move on to our next poet. By the way, you're listening to the Live Poet Society on KDNK. I'm your host, Hannison Rinsbury. For those of you just now joining us, we just finished reading poetry by Carrie Salerno and Stuart Kestenbaum. The cinematic picture of the summer by the seaside that we are so often familiar with is something I personally attribute to the vacationer culture of the early 1900s. Families from the city traipsing through verdant woods down rocky beaches, towels and umbrellas slung under their arms and over their shoulders. Alternatively, curled up with a fluffy cat or a small dog on a chaise lounge in a cottage with shutters on the windows as rain patters and the wind whistles outside. These next two poems I have for today are both by Edna St. Vincent Millay. Millay was a lyrical poet and playwright that lived from 1892 to 1950. She won the 1923 Pulitzer Prize for Poetry for her poem Ballad of the Harp Weaver, becoming the first woman to receive the award. She was born in Rockland, Maine, and as a young adult moved to Greenwich Village in New York City. She was openly bisexual and polyamorous, even during the late 1910s and Roaring Twenties, and her collection A Few Figs from Thistles was criticized for its exploration of female sexuality and feminism. Millet was often blatantly anti-war, but her alarm towards World War II and the rise of the Nazis drove her to write propaganda as part of the writer's war board, 
Edna St. Vincent Millay had several severe accidents and medical difficulties throughout her life, which caused her chronic pain until her death. Her husband, Eugene John Boisevin, heavily supported her work as an artist and is recorded to have taken on much of their domestic responsibilities in her stead. Steepletop, their estate in Austerlitz, New York, southeast of Albany, rests near the Massachusetts border and is now a museum. Her sister Norma, who inherited all of her possessions at the time of her death, was cast in several of her plays while she was alive. I'll be honest, I chose Malay's work because I personally found it really quite beautiful. I didn't do any analysis work on these pieces beforehand, I just simply enjoyed them. We'll talk a little bit about them afterwards, but truly the important part is to sit and enjoy them. They spoke to my specific experience and the overall ambiance of the Northeast, not just the way things feel physically and how they look, but to the bittersweetness that so often seeps into literature about the era, about the area and the visceral experience that spending summer in nature can provide. This next poem is The White Bark Writhed and Sputtered Like a Fish by Edna St. Vincent Millay. The white bark writhed and sputtered like a fish. Upon the coals exuding odorous smoke, she knelt and blew in a surging desolate wish for comfort, and the sleeping ashes woke and scattered to the hearth. But no thin fire broke suddenly, the wood was wet with rain. Then, softly stepping forth from her desire, being mindful of like passion hurled in vain upon a similar task in other days. She thrust her breath against the stubborn coal, bringing to bear upon its hilt the whole of her still body, and there sprang a little blaze. A pack of hounds, the flames swept up the flue, and the blue night stood flattened against the window, staring through. If you've never had to put together a fire on a, tar on a dark, very cold evening, then you may not relate to this, but this is something that I think anybody who's spent summer camping outside after it's been raining or drizzling a little bit can really relate to is that experience of desperately trying to get it to work because it's somewhat miserable outside and the delight of warm fire and crackling wood is always something that is really greatly appreciated when you're out in those experiences. And remember that Edna St. Vincent Millay lived in an era where that was probably one of the most efficient ways to keep warm was through a fire. And especially with some of the smaller houses by the at the time, there may have just been a favorite stove of hers that she sat by and wrote her poetry at, or possibly just read other people's poetry. She was a contemporary of several other um, successful poets and writers and playwrights of the day. She had a lot of big connections in several different cases. She met larger political figures, namely at one point the governor of Massachusetts on particular issues such as... Um, the lives of some particular individuals who were in deep, deep trouble with the state. So that one, I think, um, gives such a visceral experience of what it's like to be out and about in nature or in a place where it's often wet outside and the joy that comes with really achieving the thing that will make you the most comfortable. Our next piece from Edna St. Vincent Millay will be I Shall Go Back Again to the Bleak Shore. I shall go back again to the bleach, to the bleak shore, and build a little shanty on the sand, in such a way that the extremest band of brittle seaweed will escape my door, 
but by a yard or two, and never more. Shall I return to take you by the hand? I shall be gone to what I understand, and happier than I ever was before. The love that stood a moment in your eyes, the words that lay a moment on your tongue, are one with all that in a moment dies, a little undersaid and oversung. But I shall find the sullen rocks and skies unchanged from what they were when I was young. I like to imagine that she wrote this on an evening when she was out visiting the place where she grew up and was born over in Maine after some amount of heartbreak or social difficulty that really made her rethink the amount that we are so, so very temporary in this world and the amount that those experiences can be temporary no matter how beautiful or painful um, you'll notice that Edna St. Vincent Millay really likes to use rhyme schemes, and she's the only one of the poets that I read today that uses those rhyme schemes. It's something that she was known for and in cases during the more modern era of art and literature during the 40s and 50s, I believe, was the timeline. Um, she was criticized for utilizing that particular um, that particular setup in her poetry because it wasn't considered to be modern enough. It was considered somewhat antiquated. Um, and thankfully it's come back in a lot of different ways as something that people can appreciate because it's one of those forms. Rhyme schemes are, are something that has often been used in poetry and prose that people can enjoy and add some amount of patterning and rhythm to a piece that I think can be really interesting and int and integral to the overall experience. In regards to Carrie Salerno's work, her, her formatting leans more towards repetition of phrases. She says, I say a lot. She says, I am a lot. Further cementing that this is her story as the writer and it's not about these people that she's speaking to and the people that she wants to hear her. It's about her feeling heard and feeling understood, which is in itself really powerful. But the way that she does it with these repetitions, such as, but for the tributary to deny it, I deny the very river. I deny the paying of tribute. She makes it very, very clear who the subject is of the poem, even if she doesn't give her own name or someone else's name, as some other poets may do. It's another one of those particular rhythm aspects that I find really enjoyable. It makes reading them out loud really, really fun. I highly recommend that you take a look at some of her work or at another poet's work that includes this sort of repetitive pattern that can add that extra level. It's like a like that that bass riff that comes back in music over and over and over. It doesn't have to repeat all at once in the same sheet of music but throughout the song it'll it'll reprise and it'll it'll go away and it'll come back and I think that's something that I really enjoy that she does thematically in regards to Stuart Kestenbaum's joy I don't know exactly how to describe his pattern there's a lot of use of sort of pausing in between phrases and he just has such a strong use of punctuation to show what his phrasing looks like and it's one of those that, again, is very hard to describe unless you're 
looking at it directly, but I definitely recommend that as a post-public affairs show activity if you need homework, as if any of us need any extra homework. <laughs> well, it looks like we have time for me to read one more. This next piece is by another very famous Maine poet. You probably haven't heard of him at all. His name is Henry Wadsworth Longfellow. Henry Wadsworth Longfellow was born in Portland, Maine. Before it was Portland, Maine, he was born in what is technically Portland, Massachusetts. If you weren't aware, Maine was part of Massachusetts at one point or another. He's considered to be one of the more famous American poets. He's loved for his romantic poetry and has been credited on multiple occasions for pieces that people find to be particularly exciting or particularly evocative of certain experiences. So let's get into Henry Wadsworth Longfellow's The Day is Done. The day is done and the darkness falls from the wings of night as a feather is wafted downward from an eagle in his flight. I see the lights of the village gleam through the rain and the mist, and a feeling of sadness comes o'er me that my soul cannot resist. A feeling of sadness and longing that is not akin to pain and resembles sorrow only as the mist resembles the rain. Come read to me some poem, some simple and heartfelt lay, that shall soothe this, restl this restless feeling and banish the thoughts of day. Not from the grand old masters, not from the bards sublime, whose distant footsteps echo through the corridors of time. For, like strains of martial music, their mighty thoughts suggest life's endless toil and endeavor, and tonight I long for rest. Read from some humbler poet whose songs gushed from his heart, as showers from the clouds of summer or tears from the eyelids start. Who, through long days of labor and nights devoid of ease, still heard in his soul the music of wonderful melodies. Such songs have power to quiet the restless pulse of care and come like the benediction that follows after prayer. Then read from the treasured volume the poem of thy choice, and lend to the rhyme of the poet the beauty of thy voice. And the night shall be filled with music, and the cares that infest the day shall fold their tents and as silently steal away. I love that this piece so clearly and honestly admits that as much as there is a place in the world for sad and difficult poetry and poetry that speaks of tragedy and poetry that speaks of hardship because that is truly the human condition that is truly our experience in many many cases because it is hard in fact to be human nobody ever says it was easy it also clarifies the importance of finding things that are joyful and beautiful and experiencing art for the sake of how it makes you feel not just because it is true, not just because it is honest, not just because it is what truly exists, but because it is something that you needed. Sometimes the thing that is best for us is to experience the thing that we need most. And in times of sadness, in moments of 
grief in days where there's nothing but rain and thunderclouds and a deep, dark loneliness. Sometimes the thing we need is that thing that people are to have told us for so long is frivolous and silly and absurd. So take that as your permission to read something this week or listen to something this week that is downright silly, downright joyful, downright just something that fills your soul. Take that and run with it. I dare you. Now, I would like to get to the section of this podcast where I talk a little bit more about some other media I've been reading or enjoying. We can start with The Retrievals, which is a true crime podcast produced by the New York Times. I do recommend listener discretion on this particular podcast. It is a difficult subject, and I would say probably not for children. Um, so take take that as a grain of salt, but it is very well produced and, and very in interesting to listen to. Um, in regards to silly and frivolous media, as I previously said, uh, may I suggest Legends and Lattes by Travis Baldry, Baldry, pardon me, which is a cozy high fantasy novel set in a D&D universe. It's a novel about an orc woman who decides that she wants to open a coffee shop and regardless of whoever decides that they want to fight her about it, she will end up winning. Well, that's what we hope, at least. Although our theme for today didn't touch on how the Northeast has impacted the American horror genre, that is something that we'd like to keep in mind as well. The sounds from this episode are Early Summer Birds by S. Key and Heavy Thunderstorm by Pure Relaxing Vibes. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Live Poet Society on KDNK. Happy reading, folks.